Pro Se is sponsored by Lexis Plus. Experience the next step in legal research with Lexis Plus, the all-in-one ecosystem of integrated legal solutions featuring research, data-driven insights, and practical guidance, all working together to deliver results even faster. Visit LexisNexis.com slash Lexis Plus for a free trial today. That's LexisNexis.com slash L-E-X-I-S-P-L-U-S. Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. I, uh, I'm really excited about the show. This is, we have a good, we have a good bunch of stuff uh, coming up here. A, whole, a good bunch of stuff is a yeah. glowing <laughs> endorsement. Yeah. We do have a, a lot of good things to go over today. Um, one sort of almost disclaimer thing to say, we last week previewed Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings and sort of gave you like a cheat sheet of what to watch for. Obviously, everyone at Law360 has been watching this closely all week as those have proceeded. We're not going to focus on that in today's show because our sister podcast, The Term, has a really nice wrap up of what's been going on this week. So if you're interested in sort of following along with that, check out The Term. I like that you you included a disclosure there, a disclaimer. Uh, I mean, we're going to have to do that before our main segment this week, which is a focusing on a profanity-laden video of a uh, of a of a New York State judge. Yes, yeah, we, we want to give people ample warning that we're going to have a few clips with some salty language later in the show, but um, we're going to get to some news before we head into that. Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to get the cart ahead of the horse here either. But I'm sure people are wondering about. Uh, there was a new season of The Bachelorette, and if we're going to do our regular check in on that, this is the first time in the history of the show that we are all, we've all decided to watch the season. So that mm-hmm. is getting its own segment. So stick around to the end of the show for that. Very excited to talk about that with you guys. I but feel you like say, you guys yeah. wore me down after <laughs> yeah, talking right. about it on the show so often that this time around, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be on top of it. I'm watching this season premiere. So yeah. ready, to, ready to talk about it at the end of the show. But there is quite a bit of news to get to. Uh, and we have uh, a COVID item, as we often do. Uh, Bill, you want to take it away? Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the 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 push for a vaccine. I mean, there's plenty to talk about on the COVID front every day. Obviously, the cases are rising. It's a fraught mm-hmm. time. But let's be a little optimistic and talk about um, the vaccines that are in the works. Um, a company uh, called Moderna, uh, which is one of the companies that's really pushing for one of these vaccines, they announced last week that they would not be enforcing any of the uh, the patents that are related to the vaccine while the pandemic uh, continues. The move is is obviously admirable, and and one hopes that that all of the drug makers that are working toward this will sort of work together and share information. But um, I think it's more interesting to dig into from the from the sort of legal PR strategy yeah. end of it. Um, it's a company that. Uh, aside from the standard optics that would come along with a drug maker suing another drug maker over a COVID patent, uh, Moderna in particular has had quite a bit of patent-related trouble over the last few months. Yeah, I think this is going to be interesting to talk about because 
there are like different considerations than a normal patent holder has in these in these circumstances. So I'm not a cool maybe... patent holder. I'm a fun patent holder. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, God, so... I, me- I screwed that up. I, I was, was like, you messed to up be... the joke, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. we yeah, we I'm, we all got it's been it. Been a long week, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm an even cooler patent holder. (laughs) Well, let's break down um, this particular patent holder. (laughs) Who's Moderna and and what is this all about, really? Moderna is a relative uh, newcomer of a biotech company. They don't have much in terms of what they've actually gotten approved that's out in the market. But they are one of the companies that's developing a vaccine. They have this gene-based vaccine um, that they hope will be one of the very first to come out to fight the COVID pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. Moderna is one of the eight companies that was selected for the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed, which you've probably heard about, a bunch of federal money being pumped toward these companies. Um, Moderna has at least uh, seven U.S. patents related to the COVID vaccine. Um, So people have wondered about this as these move forward are these companies all going to start suing each other is there going to be some concerted effort last week moderna came out and announced that it would not be enforcing its patents while the pandemic rages it also said that it would be willing after the pandemic has subsided to license uh to to its competitors some of this technology that it uses the quote There are other COVID-19 vaccines in development that may use Moderna patented technologies. We feel a special obligation under the current circumstances to use our resources to bring this pandemic to an end as quickly as possible. Accordingly, while the pandemic continues, Moderna will not enforce our COVID-19 related patents against those making vaccines intended to combat the pandemic. uh, I'm reminded of the words. It's obviously a very interesting development given all that's going on, I am reminded of the words of the late New York Times media columnist David Carr, who said, I don't do corporate portraiture, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, so like I said, this is obviously something that's ostensibly well-intentioned, but as you intimated, there's a little bit more at play here, right? Yeah, I think there's reason to be um, skeptical anytime you see something like this. As you mentioned, I love I love a good David Carr reference. Yeah, uh, may he rest maybe, in peace. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it's good to dig into any of these things. And when you dig into Moderna's, you know, last six months on the patent front, there's some interesting stuff. Uh, back in August, a an activist group called uh, Knowledge Ecology International asked yeah. um, the Department of Defense to investigate these accusations that Moderna didn't properly disclose federal funds that it had received uh, when it when it filed its applications for patents at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and uh, this group. KEI asked uh, DOD to, if, if they look into it and, and um, Moderna didn't properly disclose the amount of money that had come from the government when they were patenting this technology, mm-hmm. they said that that the government should seize the, uh, Moderna's patents here. Um, so a few days after that, that um, report came out, um, DOD and uh, separately the Department of Health and Human Services both launched investigations into these um, into these claims. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, another nonprofit, uh, a group called Public Citizen, um, they issued a report in June that then Axios wrote up uh, that was um, that, that basically came to the conclusion that the National Institutes of Health uh, have th- their involvement in Moderna has been so extensive that the government. Uh, itself and perhaps not the company would be the real owner of any patents related to a vaccine that come out of this. Um, so, so you know, 
we now fast forward to the first week in October and we have the company coming out and, and issuing a press release and, and saying, you know, we're not going to enforce our patents. Um, as I mentioned at the up top of the show, we often talk about the interesting role of a, of a of an attorney when it comes to, yes, they have to counsel you on what you should do in terms of these complicated legal questions, but there should be some part of their brain that is working on a PR level and thinking about the things that you do in court, how they might affect the company's overall reputation. And, you know, if you have a, if, if you're in the middle of a pandemic and, and 200,000 people have died and we're all hoping that a vaccine can come out yeah. as soon as possible, the optics of suing someone yeah. over, over the vaccine, you know, in general would have been pretty horrendous. So it's not a situation where, where Moderna was probably chomping at the bit to file a lawsuit like this. So, you know, to get out in front of it and, and score a PR win from just saying, you know, we're not going to do this. It's like they probably weren't going to do it anyway. But now mm-hmm. you, you you add to that what we've just been talking about, this idea that not only are they would they probably not want to do this to begin with, but the situation would be doubly complicated by all this talk of how much federal yeah. uh, public money has gone into the technology that is that is patented here. Yeah. Um, it just, you know, it makes for a situation where they took a situation that was complicated and they spun it their way and they put out a press release. And I mean, yeah. here we are here we are talking about it. I mean, this seems to me it's not the same because uh, this other situation didn't really involve patents per se, but reminds me a little bit of like lessons learned from Martin Shkreli. Like, yeah. don't do things that are really terrible to general public health. People right. don't like it. Don't do um, anything Martin Shkreli did. <laughs> I mean, that's a good lesson overall. But definitely, I mean, he hiked up the dr- the cost of a of an AIDS drug that was very important to a lot of people. And that was obviously another previous public health crisis. So, yeah, um, yeah, this seems like that kind of just amped up because the pandemic is so ubiquitous. So, yeah, I mean, I think the way that we should look at this situation is through that sort of dual lens that I mentioned before about um, the legal intellectual property aspects of it, but also the PR end of it. Um, mm-hmm. our, our own Kevin Stawicki wrote a really uh, great story. It's up on the website at Law360. Everyone should go check it out. Um, but his take was basically like, this is being applauded. I mean, he had a quote from KEI, that activist group I was mentioning before, that was applauding this and saying, you know, this should be the first step of many. All these companies should be cross-licensing and working together, and it sh- this should be the, the first of many. Uh, when it comes to this stuff. But he also quoted a, a longtime patent attorney who had a bunch of interesting quotes, but it was basically just, this was a PR stunt. They took low-hanging fruit here that, that uh, you know, this was something that made sense, and they turned it into uh, a story. Well, for our second news item today, I want to pivot us into the world of big law. Um, I want to talk about a really interesting settlement that the law firm Sidley Austin reached with the Labor Department. The firms agreed to offer more internships and scholarships to underrepresented applicants, and that's the result of a probe about possible race and sex bias in its summer associate program. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I bring this one up in part because, you know, it's it's really no secret to anybody that the legal industry has, for a long time, had a really tough road in trying to diversify opportunities for women, people of color all of the groups that are trying to really get a full right. representation in the legal industry. Um, year after year, we put out a couple different reports here at Law360. We do the glass ceiling report, and we also do something called the diversity snapshot. Yeah, And they just show this glacial, only barely incremental progress um, to make 
the legal profession more inclusive. So that's kind of the backdrop to this whole thing. And I think it's really interesting for us to break down how a large law firm might have to take action because the Labor Department did an audit and basically told them they have to. Well, I mean, that's what jumps out at you when you when you hear your introduction there that uh, this wasn't something they chose to do on their own, <laughs> that, that they are, there was a uh, the, the government was looking into them. Yeah. I mean, let me just sort of give a little more detail about how the government got involved here. So the Labor Department has what's essentially a government contractor watchdog arm. It's called the mm-hmm. Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. It's a really long title. Rolls Everybody right off the it. Everybody just calls it OFCCP. So that you know that arm. easy acronym to say the <laughs> OFCCP. I uh, know, guys. This is where my real no, nerd I know. Yeah, love yeah, yeah. of employment law really I know, brings I know. me down because I say it all the time. They're here. Uh, they're monitoring <laughs> contracts. It's a thing. Okay. Yeah, and so um, they periodically will audit contractors for yeah. diversity shortfalls. It's part of their mandate. So mm-hmm. they'll look at like personnel data and they will take action if the contractors hire or promote too few workers of certain race, sex, national origin, demographics. And that's what happened here. In one of these audits, the Labor Department looked into whether or not Sidley had hired too few underrepresented applicants through their summer associate program. What they ultimately found is that they didn't directly find that Sidley had failed those measures. It was a little more nuanced. They found that Sidley actually didn't track it really much at all, Mm. Um, that they didn't accurately track race, ethnicity, gender data for applicants to that program. And it prevented the agency from making a clear analysis about whether or not they were falling short. And that's part of the requirement to be a government contractor. And Sidley has government contract work. Um, So the department cited those failures and some other record keeping problems. um, And then, you know, of course, Sidley denied that they actually had a problem here. But nonetheless, they agreed to a settlement anyway. Yeah. Well, what are the terms of the settlement? I mean, we said about, you know, how the yoke of the government can bring about different actions. What has actually been agreed to here? Yeah, it's it's fairly modest. I would describe this one, but it is concrete. So the firm agreed to offer five more diversity and inclusion scholarships to associates in New York and Los Angeles offices and eight paid internships to um what they quote called diverse first year law students. Mm-hmm. So those moves will cost the firm at least $150,000. So there's some, some real um, money attached to making these efforts. And the firm also agreed to partner with a bunch of organizations, things like the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities, other groups that represent um, diverse uh, candidates in, in the potential pool for some summer associates and interns. And they agreed to expand their outreach to those kind of diverse law school students. So one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's like that's like what a Sidley partner bills in in like an afternoon. So that's that's like a, a, a huge a huge penalty here. I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, I think you know you do bring up a good point. If this is modest, you know. I mean, I no no sort of getting around that. But compared to how every year, year over year, we talk about how it's incremental movement in making things more diverse. Well, it's really yeah. slow paced. At least this is a concrete step. Right. That has to be taken. Well, so many of our discussions with people who have come on the show to talk about this problem end with sort of a, we sit there and we're like, okay, assuming people are operating in good faith, which may or may not have been the case here, it was like, it's very difficult to sort of unwind this clock or whatever. And like, what can you do? Apparently, one thing you can do is come under federal investigation. That gets things moving uh, pretty quickly. Uh, Now, Amber, we're in the media. We love a good trend story. We're talking about Sidley Austin here. 
but is it a one-off? I mean, is it just like one firm maybe not keeping the records uh, as closely as they should? Or uh, well, is there something broader to say? Glad you asked, because it is definitely a trend. Um, also this month, the Labor Department announced another $150,000 settlement with Lock Lord. The allegations against them were slightly different. It was that um, allegedly female associates received lower bonus amounts than male counterparts at the firm in one of their Rhode Island offices over mm-hmm. a sort of a limited period, a couple of years. So Lock Lord agreed to that settlement. And and even with just two, we always say, you know, two's not a trend, three's a trend. Well, I don't have a third one yet, but I do have this. At an event back in April, our own Vingarieri reported that the director of the OFCCP said that law firms need to, quote, get their house in order when it comes Ah. to diversity and inclusion practices. And this seems like he's putting that into practice. I mean, at the time, he had cautioned that there may be um, some industry sectors that they're going to target more for these audits and these movements toward rectifying any problems they find. And he specifically cited the legal market as one of those. it is particularly around promotions, he said, since mm-hmm. women and minorities, disabled individuals, they're vastly underrepresented at the top level, that equity partner level in law firms. So there's going to be a focus not just on what we've talked about, which is more like summer associates, but also at that top end, too. Um, the quote law firm from, diversity dragnet. I'm yeah, I'm into it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm way into it. So the quote from the OCCP director at the time was. You need to take a look at what's happening because you are the example to the world of compliance with the law. It's important that you never be in a position where it be viewed that you are being hypocritical or not following the legal advice that you give to others. Once again, Pro Se is sponsored by Lexis Plus. Experience the next step in legal research with Lexis Plus, the all-in-one ecosystem of integrated legal solutions featuring research, data-driven insights, and practical guidance, all working together to deliver results even faster. Visit LexisNexis.com slash Lexis Plus for a free trial today. That's LexisNexis.com slash L-E-X-I-S-P-L-U-S. Next up, we've got we've got a live one here for you, um, and it is some electric audio that you're about to hear. Uh, so it relates to uh, the actual sort of incident that we are talking about happened over the summer uh, in late June when New York State Supreme Court Justice Mark Grisanti uh, escaped legal charges when he and his wife uh, basically got into a huge brawl with their uh, neighbors in North Buffalo, New York. Uh, over a parking space dispute. Uh, So like I say, there was this physical altercation between the neighbors involving the judge and his wife. Uh, No one was arrested. No charges were filed. And from there, the story might have blown over. But uh, Law 360 and some other outlets secured police body camera footage this week. Uh, That sheds quite a bit of new light on the incident. Most notably, it shows the judge uh, shoving an officer who was attempting to detain his wife and also sort of touting his relationships with both 
local politicians and local law enforcement as he sought, as he sort of was appearing to seek lenient treatment from the officers uh, who were on the scene. So there's there, there's there's quite a bit to unpack here. Yeah, it's a fascinating story to see, you know, what you see on the tape from someone who is a judge, someone who our listeners and other attorneys are in front of in court in a situation uh, that is very, very different than court. I think it's also, and we'll get into it, very fascinating to see right now uh, in, in the context of perhaps a broader moment in how we think about interactions with the police. Uh, Judge Grisanti is a is a white man, and you will see the, the amount of sort of leniency, and he, at one point, purportedly pushes a police officer. So it is just, I think it's a story that, um, you know, looking at it now, this summer, this fall, it is a very different story than it would have been perhaps a year ago. Definitely. And it was the, the, the incident happened on June 22nd, which is just a couple of weeks after the death of George Floyd and the, 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 pro, the, the sort of first wave of you know, anti-police brutality protests are in full swing. And it's, a, it's just another uh, in, a very interesting layer to an already pretty crazy story. But um, here's, here's what we know. Um, in June, the judge, Mark Rosanti and his wife, Gina, got into an altercation with their neighbors across the street over a truck that was parked in front of their house. And what began with just sort of yelling and swearing at each other soon came to blows. Uh, there was a physical altercation of some sort, and the judge's neighbor was left with a facial fracture and bite marks on his arm. This is according to a police report. This drew a lot of bit of attention in, in local New York press because of because of Grisanti. He was a state senator for, for several years, and he has served on the state bench since 2015. No one was arrested, and the Erie County DA's office investigated it, and in July, they said they, they declined to bring charges uh, against anyone, either, either the Grisantis or their neighbors, saying, quote, all parties were equally childish. So uh, the equally childish e doctrine. We yeah, all know right. that. <laughs> That's there. There's longstanding precedent on that. Um, so this probably would have blown over relatively. Um, but this week, our own Frank Runyon and some other news organizations uh, through freedom of information, through state freedom of information laws, got a hold of this body cam footage that uh, from the police that were on the scene that captured the the aftermath of the incident, and it was uh, it was very interesting and and quite revealing. Yeah, I mean, I think um, as we've seen over and over with news stories in a variety of contexts that involve the police. It's a whole different thing when you can actually see this video and see people's real-time reactions to police questioning and what's happening. So what does this one show? Well, the biggest takeaway, just the sort of top-line item here, and I've said it a couple times, is that Grisanti, I guess the most neutral way to say it is he, he becomes physical with one of the officers. The officers, his wife is yelling at the neighbor across the street. You're going to hear this uh, in the clip we're about to play, and... As, and they they take his wife to the ground. And they try to get the cuffs on her, and he sees this and go sort of runs up to the cop who's trying to detain his wife, and basically gives him like a two arm shove. And as the police sort of reprimand him for this, he not so vaguely sort of threatens them with some kind of retribution, and he mentions that he has family members who are on the Buffalo police force. Uh, what you're going to hear now is sort of the immediate aftermath of um, uh, him ma making contact with the officer. 
And as Amber said at the top of the show, this is about where if you got kids in the car or something, these are people who are in the heat of a uh, very fraught situation and uh, their, their language uh, uh, conveys that. So just uh, be warned on that front. so that is the job the, the the last voice you hear there's a lot of cross talk there in the beginning between the wife and the cops but the last voice you hear there is the judge himself um not the thing, uh, the thing you take away from it is a sense of of disbelief that this could happen to him. Yeah, um, th- yeah, I, I think that's a fair read. And I mean, again, I mean, when he 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 goes over there and like literally shoves the cop who's trying to detain his wife, and all they do is kind of just go over to him and say, "Hey, don't do this," which is kind of amazing to see uh, in practice. Um, and as you heard, he, he mentions a couple times that his his uh, his son and daughter, uh, his daughter and son-in-law are on the force. But he wasn't done dropping names. It's at this point in the tape uh, he starts sort of slurring his words a little bit, and he uh, invokes the mayor of Buffalo, uh, who's a man named Byron Brown. Let's uh, have a listen to that. And listen, I'm good friends with Byron Brown. He's like, you always Mark, just forget Norm. I did ignore him. I called and said. The truck is friggin' bark blocking half the driveway. And then we come back, that's all it is. Mm. I'm talking like this, he's friggin' punch me in the face, and I'm getting a fat lip. So. Uh, Guys, so- this reminds me so much of like when various celebrities over the years have had police encounters and they say, like, kind of a don't you know who I am kind of vibe here. Yeah. yeah. It's really got this that is- tone to it. This is on the hyper local buffalo version of that yeah, so right? yeah um uh, so there you see i mean he says he says uh, the neighbor is a, is a good he, he's good friends with the with the with the mayor um is at this point too want, want to be clear on a couple of the sort of key allegations here he explains that he's slurring his words because he has a fat lip from his punch uh, a couple of the officers on the scene did describe the grisantes as intoxicated there were no field sobriety tests administered um but that's i'm just sort of setting the scene for you there uh also later on the tape he says that the deputy police commissioner who is a man named joseph gramalia he says that gramalia is his cousin uh the the da's office later said that's not true uh they are not cousins so he's this name man dropping. is related to everyone in the <laughs> buffalo area yeah he's he's he, he's name dropping both real and fictitious uh family connections to the police force which is uh interesting i mean alex we've already heard some some pretty wild clips and and this just seems like a really unfortunate encounter all the way around. Are there any other like top line things we should know about what went down here? Um, especially since we're describing this in the audio format and sometimes seeing the video makes it a little easier to follow along. Any other stuff we should know? Yeah, that's a good call. Um, we're, we're doing our best to walk you through the audio here. The tapes are available. I mean, they're easily Googleable. Would highly recommend watching them. They're very interesting. Um, 
as a, as a means of setting the scene a little bit, I haven't mentioned yet that the judge is entirely shirtless throughout this encounter. He's clutching a, a, a shirt that was ripped off him and a gold chain that he was riffing. He's, that, that, he's, that he's derobed, that, if you will. Yes, that he said the neighbors <laughs> sort of ripped, ripped the necklace off him. Twice he is seen on the video telling officers, you arrest my fucking wife, you're going to be sorry. Uh, later on, uh, cooler heads are kind of prevailing, and... Grisanti uh, sort of engages in this back and forth with the officer that he shoved and he and he sort of name drops one more time. Get around the car and I'll bring her aside. And I didn't mean to tackle you, but I mean, you kind of threw my wife down on the ground pretty hard and I'll appreciate that. I understand that. All right? I really don't. If, that, if I would do that to your wife and you're outside, you'd do the same thing. Sure, well, if you were a police officer okay? and she was screaming no, in my face. No, my daughter's a police officer and I know what you guys are going through right now and trust me, my daughter's a police officer, my son-in-law's a police officer, my, my, okay. my, and my son's a, a, a And if your daughter and approaching her like that, she would have done the same thing. No, you grabbed my wife from over there and dragged her over here, which was not necessary. Okay. So you need to chill out about that. I'm just, I'm I have just a giving, camera, so that's, I'm giving it's, it's all documented. I don't care about your camera. Just give it a little constructive criticism, dude. Okay. Okay? <laughs> Well, his I give biggest cops, mistake I give so cops far, constructive criticism all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I've, mean, I've seen also, you do it. Also, even when reminded that this is all being captured on the police body cams, he, he does not let up. I mean, he continues to hammer that point of thinking the cop did the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, and you heard him reference it there a little bit. He said, he said, I know what you guys are going through right now, which I'm which I would think is a reference to the to the sort of tension that we were talking about at the beginning of the segment. And here's where it gets uh, really wild. So after this, this has gone on for like 20 minutes at this point. And um, another officer, he's, he's been having a relatively polite conversation with the officer that he shoved. And then another officer gets right in the mayor, right in the judge's face and yells at him and starts telling him basically not so subtly that this, this, this habit he's developed of dropping names and dropping connections within the police force uh, is not going to do either of them any favors. Shut up. Shut up. Let, let me talk to you. Since you had so much to say and you touch a cop. So let me talk to you. Guy. Let me talk to you. Guy. Quiet. No, you're not done talking yet. And I'm not done talking to you. So let's be quiet, Dad. So son can get some words in. You're saying everybody's fucking name and dropping everybody's name with a badge. And you're expecting a special treatment. How does that look like to everybody in this environment right now? It doesn't look good. And if you grab him, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Why are you still over talking? We're going back over No, I'm just saying, We're going over here. So... So, I mean, the cop is, I mean, you, you can, there are a million ways to interpret that. And I don't want to read too much into the, into the mindset of the people who were involved in this. But, I mean, he's not taking kindly to the, to the dropping of names, um, which you can clearly see there. Um, and it's at this point that Grisanti is cuffed and moved to the back of a squad car. Though, want to stress again, uh, neither he nor anyone else was actually formally arrested or eventually charged. Um, it's at this point, as if the family connections weren't enough to sort of keep track of here, this has a very long coda where Grisanti is in the back of the squad car and an officer um, is holding up uh, an iPhone or a, a, it's a, holding up a phone on speaker so he can talk to another cousin of his who is a Buffalo police detective. And they have apparently called this person who's not on the scene, but it's his cousin. We gotta, an get actual some, we gotta get some fresh blood in the uh, Buffalo area. Everyone's I related know, to each other. I know. And there's there's not much to it. They they just kind of they they kind of just recount the incident a little bit. 
the the police detective on the phone says, you know, this this really isn't going to look too good for you, given your job. Um, but then everyone there is eventually let go um, and no charges are filed. Well, I mean, this is just a wild one to hear the sort of play by play of what went down in this incident. Um, and yeah, it isn't a good look for a judge at all. But you did say no one was ultimately charged here. So is that really the end of this story that we're just sort of recapping what happened or are there potential further consequences for him? Well, you know, um, yes and no. I mean, we I think we can make a guess that the DA's office had probably seen the footage when it declined to prosecute um, when it was examining the case on on, you know, in the first instance. So difficult to see a lot changing in terms of like criminal charges. They've they've declined not to bring any. Um, but Frank and others who reported on this story did say that the uh, the Grisanti's neighbors said that they had been contacted um, by the New York State Committee on Judicial Conduct uh, for an for an investigation. I think we've talked about that body a couple of other times in ethics stories, but that is basically the ethics oversight uh, body for the New York judiciary. Um, and they that they have the power to sanction or even remove Grisanti from the bench. Right, based because on this that's, incident. that's the difference here, right? That's it's it's one thing to say that the DA didn't bring criminal charges against him. Sure. It's a different thing entirely to say whether or not this man should still be a a sitting judge in the state of New York. Yeah. Um, so that is now the the commission itself uh, has not declined has has not confirmed or denied whether a probe is happening. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Um, certainly, some eye opening video. Like I say, we've we've walked you through a little bit of it, uh, but worth exploring in full. show is something offbeat and i am ready to talk about the bachelorette premiere and we are we are ready we are excited to have you for once i mean I you, you, you've I'm always so been third wheel these, here yeah i'm so tired of these conversations where i'm like yeah i didn't watch <laughs> it what's up guys fill me in like i'm ready i watched this premiere found out that there's not one but two attorneys who are contestants this season yes super ready to break them down yeah, so the season started last night, Thursday uh, or uh, uh, Tuesday, excuse me. Um, that it was, uh, it was thrilling to, to 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 learn about the the COVID nineteen pandemic through the you know from the 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 folks at ABC's The Bachelorette <laughs> uh, yes. to learn of the 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 travails that they went through, being worried about whether the season would would happen. What yes. a struggle for them. My favorite <laughs> part of that whole setup about how they had to quarantine and do all the tests and all of that is. At some point, Chris Harrison said something along the lines of, we've tried to make the environment safe and full of love. Yes. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is out there looking out for these people. So the Bachelorette is a woman named Claire Crawley. I've kind of lost the thread on what her job is because uh, she is basically a professional Bachelor contestant at this point. Uh, but she's the Bachelorette now. And there are, as you say, there are a couple of legal professionals uh, work uh, in the contestant pool right now. First one we want to talk about uh, is a guy named Riley Christian. Um, and he, I went uh, on a deep dive, not, not so deep. It took two seconds to Google. Uh, <laughs> I found, I found his, uh, he is an attorney. 
according to this page, at a firm named Aronson, Rappaport, Feinstein, and Deutsch. They I wonder have if he's disclosed to them that he's a self-proclaimed workaholic. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they have offices in New York and Garden City, New Jersey. Now, according right. to this, uh, an interesting profile on Riley. So he uh, he got a degree in journalism uh, from the University of Findlay, which is in Ohio, I believe. And he got his JD from Syracuse. Listen to this, though. While he was in law school, he was a research assistant for Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, uh, which is in the news. <laughs> Um, I, this, I've never heard of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, his firm page says he just does general litigation and some medical malpractice. However, if you go to his Instagram, he uh, is he appears to be pivoting to uh, being a sports agent. Uh, he started his own sports agency, which is a little more uh, sort of flashy, I suppose, and you often have to be a lawyer to do that. So uh, that's Riley well, Christian. I really appreciate you giving the, uh, the official bio and update about him, but... For anybody else that watched the show, what you're going to remember about Riley from Queens is that he gets out of the limo to meet the Bachelorette, oh, yeah. walks up to her, and says something along the lines of, my job is a lawyer, and I try to get juries to reach the verdict that I think they should reach. Yeah. And what I'd push for here is guilty as charged for you looking beautiful in that dress. I'm just really Boy. glad that that didn't end with something about a hung jury. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Look at this guy. Unbelievable. Uh. So yeah, I don't know. He didn't get much screen time other than that. I don't know how he, he he did get a rose. He's still on, but I don't know how long he is for the season. But someone, the other lawyer, got a lot more screen time. And Amber, I'll give you the floor here because there's this this has some personal resonation for you. It does. And look, I'm not gonna be nearly as thorough as you were, Alex. I'm not okay. gonna tell you what uh, much of his background at all. I'm just gonna say this. I've avoided watching The Bachelor and Bachelorette. You know, I dip in here and there, but don't watch it like you guys. I feel like this was faded for me. <laughs> Turn it on, and Tyler C. appears on my television. Tyler is 27 and a lawyer from Morgantown, West Virginia. Morgantown rep. Stand up, Morgantown. Oh, yeah. I was born in Morgantown. When yeah. I lived there when I was a little girl. Went back to Morgantown for my, my years uh, at West Virginia University as an undergrad. This guy was made for me to talk about him. A lawyer... From my alma mater, he went to undergrad at WVU, and then he also went to WVU Law School. It yeah. appears that he's a relatively recent graduate. The big standout for me, other than me being completely flabbergasted because I did not know that this connection would pop up for me, and I was super excited. Guys, his accent, mine's not that heavy, right? His was quite intense. It was Very tough. heavy. Um yeah, no, yours yours doesn't sound your yours comes out in certain phrases, little, little twangy moments. Yeah, sure. yeah. Sure. Um, but it was an eventful night for Tyler. He 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 did the classic move of somebody does it every season. He went over and tried to sort of snitch uh, on another contestant, accuse them of uh, not being here for the right reasons. We won't get into it. It was about he accused some other guy of DMing with girls before the show. Which um, I, the only thing I'll say is that that pattern. sort yeah. of. That sort of made sense to me in a little bit because uh, allegedly he knew these other girls that this other contestant had reached out to. And that makes sense in that he's living in a college town. So yeah. I was presuming that these were right. college age women but, that were being solicited online. But so, Amber, we, we, we need to stress to you as a new viewer that this is... Happens all the time, right? Yeah. This is in the canon. Like we need a, you sure. need a long German word for this specific <laughs> thing. It happens yeah. like four or five times well, per season. Does yeah. it blow up as spectacularly as it did for this guy? Because 
we're maybe burying the lead a little. Uh, spoiler alert. Tyler C. is no longer on the show. Yeah, okay. so burying, yeah. burying the lead would be not mentioning that his bio on the website says Tyler C. hates snakes with hates in capital letters as one of the <laughs> fun facts about him. He just Great. wants Very everyone to, to know. know that he hates snakes. Yeah, he's a lawyer. He's also uh, an Indiana Jones cosplayer. So uh, he's got that going for him. He can go back to that. But no, Amber, so it, I mean, it's it, it, it always blows up for somebody. But in this case... Um, the guy he was accusing of, D of of doing shady DMs was a guy named Yosef. And Yosef, so Yosef got a rose and Tyler got sent home. So she kept the accused, sent home the accuser, uh, which doesn't always happen that way. So that was um, uh, a little bit interesting in that regard. I kind of liked that move. I think in part because they, of course, played up the drama of this moment. So Tyler got a lot of screen time and I was loving that. Um, well, someone, so this was a real bang like, up start to the season for me. I feel like your your accent is coming out in this segment. Yes, it I was going to say is. the same thing. It probably is. I'm getting excited. I'm thinking about home. It's. I'm sure it's there. Yeah. Well, someone called him. Someone called him like a. I'm paraphrasing, but somebody said something along the lines of like he's like a dime store Matthew McConaughey or something with the accent, oh, which isn't. Yes. Which that's isn't a great well, I mean, Matthew McConaughey's from Texas. Uh, this is a, an entirely different thing. But that's what I'm saying thing. about yeah. Tyler's accent was mm -hmm. far Very more thick. intense than I yeah. remember my home state and i've got a lot of friends and family still in west virginia no one i know sounds like tyler so it was a real <laughs> shock for me so anyway that's the bachelorette report um like we said we've got one lawyer still in the ranks maybe we'll come back to it if something uh, of note happens but i'm just like like i said i'm i'm, I'm glad to have you on board amber it's uh, it's really joy, great guys. to have this be a be a three-man weave yeah, re really enjoyed this talk. We will circle back around if there's more to say. Um, but that'll wrap us up for today. And thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our contributing reporters this week, Frank Runyon, Kevin Stowicki, Braden Campbell, and Vin Guerrieri. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se... We'd love for you to leave us a written review and five stars wherever you're listening to us right now. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to know more about anything we talked about today, including checking out some of those clips uh, that we alluded to in the um, story about the, the judge who, who had some trouble, you can go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week. <laughs>